So about one year ago, I was invited by my brother Don to go down to West Virginia and to preach a week-long revival. So I went, drove my car down to the hinterland up in Ono, West Virginia, right next to his church is nestled right next to the banks of Little Fudge Creek in West Virginia, and I had to preach a revival week. I had no idea what I was doing. I am a guy from the city, and I was asked to go to hillbilly country. This, somebody, somebody told me, Kent City's redneck country, but down there is hillbilly country. So I was invited down to hillbilly country to preach a week-long revival. And I really didn't know what I was up for, so I did some research on it. And I found uh, some interesting things. The definition of revival is very simple. It means to breathe new life into a person. To reawaken a soul that has grown cold and dead. That's really the definition of it. In church life, it's actually seeing what I would say experiencing new life by seeing outward signs and manifestations. This really began in the great revivals in American history back in about 1730. A guy by the name of George Whitfield and then Jonathan Edwards would preach and people would, they would swoon and cry and fall and shake after they heard him. And uh, after a while, after George Whitfield was successful, he would go over to Europe and then come back again and people would get excited again, but it became kind of like a vacation for them. They would all go out to the countryside to hear a great speaker for a week, and then they'd go back home all year long, and then they'd get ready for him the next year. And so in a way, revival in America has become sort of a seasonal renewal of the Spirit. At first, when they first heard it was to, you know, they want to set the world on fire, but after a while, you can't maintain that emotion, and it just becomes a time to reassess and re-engage God again. Different churches view it different ways. Pentecostal churches, when they hear revival, they see it as an outpouring of the Holy Spirit who comes on people and they talk in tongues, or they see healings, or just miraculous things. Some churches in California, Jackie, you can attest to this, see gold dust coming down out of the ceiling. That's revival. Prosperity uh, preachers and prosperity churches see revival as material blessing. If I name it and I claim it, God will give it. He will give it. So if I want a new house, he'll give me that new house. If I want a new limousine, if I believe it's strong enough, he'll give it to me. And that, when he gives it to me, it's a sign of revival in a person's life. In normal evan evangelical churches, revival has become, in a sense, a business, a organized program of giving the gospel. This summer, Luis Palau is going to come. But Billy Graham, who just passed away, was an expert at it. I was actually at a Billy Graham crusade in Cleveland, where they'd go from church to church, preparing churches eight months ahead of time before he came, and it almost was like a science. You give the gospel, and really his messages were just clear, clean, not that deep, come forward, and people would come forward because they were prepared to come forward, and that would be the evangelicals perception of revival to get the gospel out new people saved more people making recommitments in a sense ever since i've been in ministry i i have been around pastors and myself wanting revival in our church i mean let's pray for revival you might have heard that a lot of songs are circled on we need revival and in a sense i i want revival 
I want revival. I want revival here at Kent City Baptist. But before we jump on this revival, we need revival and get pumped up about it, I, there's, I hesitate for three reasons. Number one, number one, sometimes revival is more about a show than it is about an inward reality. It's about seeing something happen. So the second thing I'd say, you, you can tell the revival's powerful because more people come. So it's about heads, counting heads, where I think Jesus doesn't care necessarily about counting heads as, he much, as much as he wants humility. People who are really, I mean really different, like real Christians. I think that's what matters to Jesus. And the third thing, specifically as I've been going through First Peter, I'm not sure when we pray for revival, we know what we're really asking for from God. I mean, do you really want revival? Because what we're going to see in 1 Peter chapter 4, real revival, when a soul is awakened, usually comes at a cost. Suffering, trials, hard times. Acknowledgement of sin. Revival comes at a cost. And so I want us to stand, if we can, open up the first Peter 4, and I want you to listen to the language because really this is this is uh, Peter's final message really on suffering. He's been talking about it ever since chapter 1, verse 6, but he's also talking about we need to be rejoicing in suffering. What? And the idea of rejoicing is to be revived, to be awakened, to be excited about this. Listen, as starting in chapter 4, verse 12. He says, Beloved, and he, so he's saying, Brothers and sisters, and, he's, and this is an, a tender note, he's, he's saying, I want to speak to you personally, my brothers and sisters. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. That's really the result of revival, wanting God's glory and his spirit to rest on you. And he's saying it's coming because of insults and trials. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or an evildoer or as a meddler, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? This is, this is a terrifying passage, truthfully. We'll get into this in a second. Verse 18, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And everybody said, amen. Have a seat. I'm titling this Straight Talk. And by straight talk, the idea is that uh, I'm just going to be honest with you about suffering, about tough times as a Christian, because we all face them, and that's the point. And so I want you to look at this more as a meditative message. I want you to get your heart prepared because at the end of this message, we're going to worship. He uses 
some words in there, starting at verse 12. He's talking about fiery trials. Verse 13, he's talking about sharing in Christ's sufferings. In verse 14, he's talking about being insulted. In a sense, I'm tired of Peter talking about this. To be honest, I was talking to Jared about this. We, I didn't know First Peter was this. Like, that's all he talks about is suffering. From chapter 1, verse 6, you get a whole thing in chapter 2. Derek talked about it. Jared talked about it last week at the beginning of 1 Peter 4. It's all about suffering. Peter's talking to people who are going through incredible suffering. Why does he got to keep focusing on this? I hate suffering. I hate it. Do you know why I hate suffering? Because pain is painful. It really, I don't, I'm a wimp. I'll be honest with you. I don't like it. And so when I go to sermons where the pastor's talking about suffering, I'm like, oh man, why can't we do, like, talk about holy laughter? I'd rather holy laughter. Yeah, I would, Jackie, I would rather gold coming down. I'd catch it, and then I'd take it to the bank. It'd be great. Why doesn't Peter talk about gold? God can do anything he wants. I'm a wimp. I think when we hear, personally, when we hear that, verse 12, God uses fiery trials to test you. Oh, we perceive it from a very simplistic mindset. I call it the Andy Bernard of the office mindset. One time he's saying, it would be easy to be a connoisseur. That movie is bad. That food is bad. In a sense, when we hear about suffering and trials, that is bad. I don't like it. I like comfort. Comfort is good. I think that's the way we view it when we talk about suffering. It's a thin understanding. And instead of under, you know, doubting God's goodness through tough times, we need to hear straight talk about what he's trying to accomplish. Look at verse 19 a second. After all of this suffering, in verse 19, he says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. So what he's saying, and he, and he says, God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. So he's using, he's using the character quality of God as a creator, meaning God is working. He's transforming. He's creating something through suffering, and it's according to his will. He's doing something. It's not just good or bad. It's part of the process. There's so much more at stake than just my comfort. There's so much more at stake. And when you read this, when you let this fall upon you and meditate on it, it's really overwhelming. I was overwhelmed but I was reading this week because I'm very simplistic. And Peter's not. And you'll understand what I mean in a second. The first thing he does is he tells us what suffering is not. Verse 12 said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So the first thing is not something that's just unique to you. It's not something strange. You are not the only person who faces fallout. The world's broken. We all do. In a sense, Proverbs says nobody really knows the pain of another heart. Nobody knows what each of us go through because I think we each face trials in different ways. Things affect us differently. I remember my dad went to a marriage counseling with my mom and they had to share their trials in this circle. And I have a sister that's mentally retarded. At the age of two years old, my dad took my sister to 40 hospitals in two years because they couldn't diagnose what she has. And it was tough. When your daughter loses her mind and she goes from a two-year-old down to a three-month-old, 
and you have to take her to hospital after hospital after every weekend. It's tough. And I remember he shared that, and somebody, he was listening to some other people, and he said, man, there's, it's hard on our marriage, but we never contemplated divorce through this. Boy, there's a couple in there who had a really tough time because they were really considering divorce. So I went up to him afterwards. He said, I don't, do you mind me asking what, what happened in your life? And here's what he said to my dad. We couldn't, we couldn't decide on the color of wallpaper in the kitchen. And my dad, my dad didn't judge him. My dad said, you know what? That was a real problem for them. Each of us have our own trials, and they affect us differently. We're not unique. I was reading this, uh, reading some, some accounts by this pastor, and he talked about this one time he got called to go visit a home where there was a suicide, and the mother looked at him and said, that was my son, why me? He left there after two hours, got a phone call, had to go across town to go to another house where their son committed suicide, and the mother said, why me? Life is hard. It's broken. You're not unique. Second thing is suffering is not a sign God is angry or indifferent to your plight. We always say, why doesn't God help me? Why doesn't he intervene? Why didn't he stop the bullets from killing those 17 kids? Why does he allow cancer in my sister's life? There's a story about a man. He, he uh, was around the Civil War time, and he won, he won this raffle at this county fair, and he won this beautiful horse. And his neighbor came by and said, man, you are so blessed to win that beautiful horse. And the guy said, I don't know. I, you know. I don't know. About a week later, the horse broke out of the pen, got out of the stable, and took off into the woods. And the neighbor came by and said, I heard you lost your horse. Man, you must have done something bad for that to happen. He goes, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. A week later, the horse came back, and he, he had a, three or four other wild horses with him. And they corralled him, so he's got his horse with three of the horses. Neighbor comes by and said, man, you're blessed for that to happen, do you? The guy said, I don't, I don't know. His son, went, his son went one day to shoe one of the wild horses to try, before he trying to break it, and the wild horse kicked his son in the femur, broke his femur bone. And the neighbor comes by and says, man, you must be a rotten guy for that to happen to your son. He said, I don't know. I don't know. The next week, the... Union Regiment came to recruit soldiers, all the young, capable boys, came to this guy's house and said, man, your son can't fight. He's got a broken leg, broken femur. But he went to the next-door neighbor's house and said, your son looks great. We'll take him. Neighbor came by and said, man, I must really be cursed. <laughs> you know, so we, we don't know what's going on. We don't know what God's doing. We always try to evaluate when really God's will is only discerned retrospectively. We have no idea. The third thing I would say, suffering is not, it's not equal, it's not the same thing as deserved punishment. Look at verse 15. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. It's interesting, meddling is just as bad as murdering. Wow, that's crazy. Meddling is when getting involved in other people's business, you have no right gossiping. Just as bad as murdering, in a sense. But what he's saying here is, don't let any of you suffer as a murderer. You know, it, so suffering isn't the same thing as the consequences of sinning and just doing bad things. You know, I, I saw this videotape about two years ago of this student who was complaining, 
and his parents were complaining because his teacher, who knew Taekwondo, gave him a flying kick in class. And the kid went landing in the back and hit his head. That wasn't good. It really wasn't. He should, that shouldn't have happened to him. But he didn't show you the first hour and a half where the student was dancing on his desk, throwing papers and mocking and flipping off his teacher. And the whole class was. And they were laughing at him. And they were saying he's an idiot and he couldn't fight. So the guy just unleashed with a kick to the chest. In a sense, we could say he shouldn't do that, but in a way, that was deserved, kind of. Sorry, Jill, I know I, if I said that at public school, I'd be in big trouble, but don't complain when, you know, you go through a red light, that stupid cop. You kind of deserved it. Actually, what's funny, one time my brother went through a red, a red light, and there was two cops that were parked up on a hill. My brother pulled up to these two cops, and he said, what are you doing? said, I ran through that red light. And they said, you did? Yeah. All right, here's a ticket. <laughs> okay, anyhow. So suffering is not deserved punishment. It's just not. So then what is it? What is suffering? Because what we're going to find here is, wow. Peter wants us to see that it's so much more. It's much more than just trying to figure out the mystery of sovereignty and free will. It's usually the debate. Peter's language is going to be shaped by his intimate knowledge of the Old Testament. He's going to bring to light three stories in the Old Testament. I really didn't know this before I studied it, but three commentators all agreed what Peter's doing is he's going to relate suffering to Old Testament clues he finds to help understand why we suffer now. And so what he's going to say is he's going to first bring us to Malachi 3, and he's going to show us how in Malachi 3 it's like suffering is like soap. It's like a refiner's fire, but fuller soap to cleanse us. Then he's going to talk about from Isaiah 11, suffering is actually a sign you have solidarity or you are sharing in Christ's life. You and him are one, your buddies, your pals. You're his friends. And then we're going to see, and it's the harshest one, Ezekiel 9. I, I don't think I ever read this passage. I, you know, I've read through the Bible a lot, but it never stuck with me like, this is a strange passage. Ezekiel 9 is going to talk about how suffering is a sign that judgment is on the move. It's a sword. So, let's, uh, I want you to notice too something about how the movement of Peter. He first starts with me on a personal basis inside cleaning me, and then he's going to show the world that I'm his, and then he's going to work out from the church to judge. It's weird, but let's go through it. So let's first start with soap. And again, I want you to really go to these passages, meditate on it to get your heart prepared for worship, because this is, this is powerful. So I'm going to first show you how suffering is like soap, a refiner's fire in a fuller's soap. Look at verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And then at the end of this section, he's talking about judgment. And judgment is found in verse 17, for it is time for judgment. Now I want you to go to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is the very last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. We're going to keep going back and forth, so if you can keep Put a note back in 1 Peter, but go to Malachi chapter 3. Verse 
And we're going to read verses 1 through 5. So verse 1, Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming. So this is, a lot of scholars will say, well, this is in reference to John the Baptist is going to make the way ready for Jesus to come, and Jesus is going to come to his temple. Then verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. And so most scholars would say the phrase in Peter, refiner's fire, really comes from this, because as you'll see it, verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So purity before worship and offerings. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of his former years. Then God will be pleased because you're purified. And then verse 5, then I will draw near to you for judgment. So the movement's from purity to judgment. And so what he's saying is he's saying God is going to be like a refiner that we talked about this in chapter 1, verse 6, where you take silver, put it in heat, get rid of the dross so it's really shiny, but also like a fuller's soap. This is a fascinating analogy. A fuller is a person, is basically a person that bleaches clothes white. The Old Testament, they would say Jews had a secret way of taking Fullers would have these chemicals. They'd go outside the city, take, take oiled and, and dirty white garments and take them out and pour this alkaline soap on it, put it in the water, let it soak, and then they would beat it. And step on it and scrub it and wash it and beat it and step on it and scrub it. And then they'd let it sit in the sun and it would take, come go pure white. They would say some of these fullers had these secrets they wouldn't tell anybody. Remember that one commercial about that guy? How do you get my clothes so white? Ancient Chinese secret. Oh, my husband, some hotshot. Here's his ancient Chinese secret. Calgon. You remember that commercial? It's kind of like the same thing. Steve, you remember that commercial, don't you? Ancient Chinese secret. Mm, you remember that, don't Mike, you remember that, don't you? Mike, somebody, does anybody remember that? Yes! Maybe I'm old. I am past 50. That is an old commercial. They would say, ancient Chinese secret. Mm, remember that, Mike? Just like that. That's kind of the idea of the fuller. The fuller could get stuff white, but in the Hebrew, the word fuller, listens to this, means to tread on. So suffering is a treading by God on our soul, a fire refinement process that's meant to make us clean. God accomplishes this by allowing the pain from suffering to make us wonder why. Why are we like this? What did we do wrong? How do we need to change? Forces us to evaluate, to wonder, and then search our soul, and then turn from our wicked ways. That's what suffering does. Because to really get close to God, to really get close to God, you need to be clean. I know a lot of wives, after their suffering, Husbands come home from work. Before they'll kiss them, they'll say, take a shower. Same thing. Peter is at the table, and the Lord wanted to wash all the disciples' feet. And Peter, Peter, Peter said, no. Lord, no. No, you're never going to wash my feet. Listen to what Jesus said to Peter. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. 
How does he wash you? He treads on you. Second thing, what is suffering? Go back to Peter, 1 Peter 4. We see verse 13 and 14. It's solidarity, union. It's, uh, it's shared life. Listen to verse 13, but rejoice. He keeps using that word rejoice. Wow, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. He keeps, he keeps comparing suffering reveals glory. Suffering shines glory. Suffering shows up glory. And then he says, if you suffer, don't worry about it because God's glory rests on you. This language where God rests on you, his spirit rests on you, is first found in Isaiah 11. You don't have to turn there, but I know you've probably heard this. Isaiah 11, and it's in reference to the Messiah and the servant of God. Isaiah 11.1, 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. I know who that is. That's Jesus, the shoot that comes out of Jesse, because Jesse is David's dad, and David was the forerunner of Christ, so the shoot out of Jesse is Jesus, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Spirit of God shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. So what he's saying here, what Peter's saying here, is when you suffer, it is a sign that you are carrying the mark of Christ. You are united with him, the one who has the spirit of God resting upon him, and it can be true of you. The language is meaning this prophecy, which is about Jesus, is now true of followers of Jesus. What Jesus had in life, those by faith now have. And suffering is what makes it obvious. When I was a little kid, I loved about this time of year, March, because I'd go down to Lake Erie. It's when the, the ice over Lake Erie, I would live right across the street. Like the ice over Lake Erie would start to melt. And in the melting process, on shore, you would see all this stuff that was caught up in the ice flows or stuff that was uncovered from the erosion during the winter. And I would look for stuff. I'd look for coins or cool uh, trading cards or something. And one time I found this coin that was about that thick, but it was full of sludge. It was full of green algae, and it was full of black dirt, and it was crusted on there. So I took it to the water. I got a rock. I started scraping it and scrubbing it. I flipped it, scraped it, and scrubbed it. And it was a brand new silver dollar shining. And I ran to Avalone's Pharmacy and I bought four packs of grape bubble yum. It was the greatest day of my life. But, but to, to know what that coin was, I had to scrape it. And I had to scrub it and wash it. And that scraping and that scrubbing revealed the gleam of something that was worth something. Suffering scrapes our souls and reveals glory. Reveals glory. Glory is the image of God on my life. It's amazing that you are allowed to carry that image of Christ in your life. 
It's amazing, and the way that it's scraped off is through suffering. In fact, some of the spirit of glory is wisdom, understanding, ignorance. Sometimes through confusion and tough times does wisdom really shine. When people have hard times and they need somebody why they, they need somebody that gives them the answer, they go to the person they know has wisdom. That tough time reveals the wisdom that the person has. We go look at First Peter. What's ironic about glory is when glory arises, surprise is turned upside down. Verse four, Jared preached on this of chapter four, verse four. With, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join in them with the same flood of debauchery. What he's talking about. People who live like pigs are surprised when you now have glory and you don't want to live in it anymore. They are surprised. And then in verse 12, he's saying, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Our surprise turns upside down. Before we're saved and we are part of the pigs, we 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 won't run from the bar. We won't run from the keg fest at St. Patrick's Day. Man, we, we'll go into debauchery, absolutely. But trials when you're a pig, they don't make any sense. This is not fair. I don't deserve this. But then when glory comes on you, I don't want that keg party anymore in trial. Yeah, Lord, if you're using it for my good to get your glory, I will wait. Here, Here's the best way to talk about solidarity. And it's a personal story, but I hopefully it'll make sense. When I was at Moody, we would have these what's called mentor circles where we would meet with guys from our class each week and meet with one teacher and we'd talk about our week and pray for each other. And our teacher did something. He goes, I want each of you to give, point out three guys and give them a compliment because we don't guys don't compliment guys, so let's do it. And he pointed to this one guy, Scott, and said, Scott, I want you to pick out three guys and compliment them. Scott went to the first guy and said, he's just a, an honest person. Scott went to another guy and said, that guy can preach like crazy. And then he pointed to me, and listen to what Scott said to me. It's one of the greatest compliments I ever got. He said, Chris Weeks. What can I say about Chris Weeks? Here's what he said. If I was to go to Vietnam, I would want Chris Weeks to go with me. That was the greatest compliment I think I ever got. That's what Jesus is saying to you when he asks you to suffer. He wants you to understand the depths of God's spirit alive in you. Because, man, when you suffer with somebody, when you go to have a victory party after you suffer with somebody, like if it's a tough football sports season, man, when you go to the victory party, you kind of understand it ways nobody else does. When we go to heaven, if we've suffered with Christ, he will look at you. And he'll look at you and he'll probably just nod and go. That's called the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. It's friendship. It's friendship. It's the deepest form of friendship anybody can give you. Jesus is saying, I want Jared to go to Vietnam. Third thing, what is suffering? And here's, a, I'm just going to read this because this is hard. I believe suffering is also a sign that God's judgment is starting to flow, to roll. Look at verse 17 and 18. And I, I, you just can't be light about this because listen to what he says. It is time for judgment. 
Okay, so time, scholars call that the eschaton. It's the end of day. We are getting close to the end of days. Time for judgment to begin. And where does it begin? At the house of God, at the household of God and God's people. He starts there. So he saves us. He shines us up. And then he's going to start working out from us. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? I want you to go to Ezekiel 9, and you'll see what uh, I'm talking about. Ezekiel is the third major prophet after Jeremiah. You have Jeremiah, so if you go in the middle of your Bible, Psalms, Proverbs, and you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. If you go to Ezekiel 9, in my mind, Ezekiel's the weirdest guy in the Bible. <laughs> I don't know what he's saying half the time. He's very odd. But watch this. He's vivid. Like, watch this chapter 9. Okay, so chapter 8. Here's what chapter 8's about. Chapter 8, God says, hey, Jeremiah, I'm going to scrape a hole in the wall of the temple, and I want you to look in there. And as he looks in there, he sees the elders, the leaders of Israel, doing amazingly wicked things. They are bowing down to squiggly animals. And then the women are bowing down to Tammuz, a god of fertility. And then they are snubbing their nose at God. So they're idolaters. So we get to chapter 9. That's the context. Now look at chapter 9 and listen. And if you can, use what I'd call your sanctified imagination. Try to imagine this. You guys watch movies, so you know how to use your CGI in your brain. Let it happen on this, because this is terrible. It's terrible. Verse 1, Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice. God cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near... The executioners of the city of Jerusalem, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. I imagine, uh, I imagine Lord of the Rings on Weathertop with guys with black hoods and swords. And behold, six men came from direction of the upper gate with faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. What's that weapon for? For, uh, for harvesting crop? No, for slaughter. For slaughter. And with them was a man clothed in linen. So there's a guy in white. He's clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. So he's got a writing case. He's got a pen. And they went and stood beside the bronze altar. So they went to the middle of the city where the Holy of Holies is, standing next to the altar outside the Holy of Holies. And they are summoned there. Now, the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. So it came down upon the temple. So God's glory, and he called to the man clothed in linen. Hey, buddy in a white, yeah, what do you want? He's got this writing case. And the Lord said, pass through the city, go through the city, through Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all their abominations that are committed in it. So what he's saying is mark those who repent of their sin. Mark those who are broken for their wickedness. What is the mark of people who repent of their sin? We are given the Spirit of God that rests upon us. That's our mark. Keep that in mind. Keep reading verse 5. And to others, he said in my hearing, 
pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare. You shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch not one on whom the mark, and begin at my sanctuary, begin at my house. Judgment begins at my house. So they began at the elders who were before his house. Then he said to them, defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. So they pulled all these dead, bloody bodies into the temple. And while they were striking and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and I cried. Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and the outpouring of your wrath? And he said to me, the guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood. The city is full of injustice. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the Lord. The Lord doesn't care. He doesn't see nothing. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist brought back words saying, I have done as you commanded me. Listen to this quote. If the purifying fire of God coming, that means when Jesus comes back, entails for those united to Christ such anguish as Peter's readers are undergoing, he's writing to Christians who are being insulted, who are being sometimes brought to the circus of Rome, who aren't allowed to trade because they're Christians. We don't suffer like that. But he writes, for those who are united to Christ, such anguish as Peter's readers are undergoing, what shall the consummation of that purifying divine presence mean for those who've rejected God's good news? So what he's saying is what you are feeling is the beginning of judgment. He uses it to refine us. And it's bad. What will it be like for those who it's just for slaughter? So Peter says, if you're undergoing tough times because you are following Jesus, rejoice. Rejoice because the pain you are receiving is nothing. <laughs> rejoice because your glory is being shined up and rejoice because it means God wants you close to him. He wants you close. He wants to wash you so he can kiss you. When I look back on my life, and if you've read my blog, you've probably heard this, but when I look back on my life personally, I have found over and over again it was suffering that revealed that which was genuine. I mean, you can have all kinds of revivals, but when suffering comes, there's a different kind of wake-up call. Murray Potts, an elder at our church, died last year as he battled some of the worst cancer I ever saw a person battle, and he said, in the middle of his struggle, I have never loved Jesus so much. My dad came to Christ when he lost his job because he stood up for Christian values and he got fired. And the strongest married couples in our church are often the couples who almost got divorced. When I turned 40, I bought a journal, and I wanted to track my relationship with God, and I figured that, man, now I'm 40, I'm a man, I better know this stuff. And so I really wanted to know, and I wrote this down, what it really, really means to have a relationship with you, God. It's a nice thing to talk about, but I want to experience. That's what I want. In other words, I want a revival in my life. Two pages later, you could flip one, two. Two pages later, in my journal, on the top of the page, here's what I wrote. 
My dearest father died today. I want revival in our church. But in a way, I don't. <laughs> I know the cost. Question is, really, do you want God close to you? Do you? 